In these afternoon sessions, I'd like to speak on the subject, how to keep the elephants off your air hose. <laughs> Elisha was residing at Dothan. A servant awakened early one morning, went out and saw what to him was a horrible sight. Countryside was covered with the invading Syrian army. And he rushes in and invites his master to come out and view the scene. And the first thing Elisha says is, stop fearing. Because they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And you can almost imagine the mentality of the servant. Perhaps under his breath he might have said, Master, you need a change of prescription. You're not seeing well. You can't count. And then Elisha prays, open his eyes that he might see. And you know, gentlemen, that's our problem. We cannot solve our problems primarily because we cannot see them. And if there is one prayer I've been praying increasingly, it's this. Help me to see clearly, Lord, when everyone else is intoxicated. It's not sufficient to be engaged in Christian work. One must be efficient and effective. Efficiency involves the art of doing things in the right way. Effectiveness involves doing the right things. And both are essential. And what I'd like to do is this. I'd like to probe with you six areas of your ministry. I'd like to probe your intellectual life, your social life, your emotional life, your physical life, your professional life, and your spiritual life. And I want to explain my tag. What I plan to do is this. In each of these areas, I'd like to hit you with three principles that will open up our group for discussion. I hope, at least I have designed them to provoke your thinking. I hope they won't paralyze it. And then we'll open the group up for some interaction, for some questions, for some sharing because I think this can be a mutually profitable time as we share with one another what the Spirit of God has been teaching in these areas. So this afternoon, to get us started, and knowing that you are so alive intellectually, I'd like to move into this realm. And let me give you three principles, and then we'll open it up. Number one, cultivate the art of thinking. Now, men, nothing is as easy as thinking. Nothing is as difficult as thinking well. And thinking well may be profitable, but if it is, it is always painful. There is a price tag 
to thinking well. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, the mental health chapter of the New Testament, a chapter with which you should drench your mind frequently, living in a neurotic society, Paul says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, notice, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, thinking is always dangerous unless it's under the direction of the Spirit of God. Then it's eminently profitable. I saw a sign in a businessman's office some time ago that jarred me. It said, you are not what you think you are what you think you are. And I was reminded of the words of Jesus Christ, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now this has nothing to do with age, but it has everything to do with attitude. You see, you can diagram a man's life in this way. He is either growing or dying, depending upon which way the arrows are moving. If the arrows are moving in this way, he's dying, no matter what his age is. He could be 22. We have students at the seminary who are 22 who are educated beyond their intelligence. They're dead in the head and everywhere else. If the arrows are moving in this direction, then you are grown, no matter what your age. I saw an interesting epitaph not too long ago. It said, die, age 28, buried, age 64. And I thought, this is the story of many a man's life. I have a dear friend in our community. She's 64 years of age. I'm sorry, 60, 86. And some time ago, we were in a social gathering, boring one another with our conversation, and she came in the front door. And the moment she spotted me, the first thing she said was, Well, Hendricks, what are the five best books you've read in the last month? Pretty soon she said, look, let's not bore one another with each other. Let's get into a discussion. And if we can't find anything to discuss, let's get into an argument. <laughs> I thought to myself, boy, may her tribe increase. 86 years of age with a tiger in her tank. <laughs> See, men, the mind is like a muscle. It develops with use. 
They have never discovered a brain which was even partially used. So don't worry that you will wear yours out. Forget it. It's not a live option. And what you need is something that will stretch your mind. But be careful what you feed it. Because what you feed it will largely determine what you are. You see, if you feed your mind with garbage pail material, you'll develop a garbage pail mentality. In my judgment, one of the most crucial means of stretching your mind is through the process of reading. Readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. And I think the man who can read and does not read is no better off than the man who cannot read at all. And it bothers me every now and then running into a navigator who apologizes for the fact that he did not have an education. My friend, you may not have had an education in the formal sense, but you can get the most profound education that it's possible to get. You can pick the greatest minds of all centuries through a process of reading. And there are a lot of people who are supposedly educated who have a degree but not an education. Now what I recommend to you is this. Be sure you read widely and wisely. Everything in print is not worth reading, even in the Christian bookstore. And I think you need to read as widely as possible because this is the way you stretch your mind. I am currently reading a series of books that are absolutely stretching me almost to the breaking point, and it's the most refreshing experience. In fact, I have the hardest time staying out of them. You see, I can always tell whether I have a good book or a poor one by how long it takes me to get through. I know how fast I read. So I know how long it takes me to get through a book with so many pages. But if it takes me about five times as long to get through that book, I've got a good book. Because if you read a page and you stop and it starts chasing 20 trains down tracks, you've got a good book. And there are a lot of books that are frankly not worth the time. They don't start any trains at all. They don't even have a caboose. This calls for what I call some think time in every day. You got some? May only be 10 or 15 minutes, but it might be the most significant time of your day. Just write it down in your little schedule as think time. But make sure you feed your mind some fuel. Always have something going on a back burner. You know, my wife makes a soup. I nicknamed it enthusiastic soup. She throws everything she's got into it. And it takes all day to prepare. She invariably prepares it on Saturday, and boy, real early she starts, and this sad stuff simmers all day, and the saliva's all down the front of you, you know, and long about 6.30 at night, boy, you put into it. You know, and it makes camel soup like dishwater. And the secret to the thing is simmering. 
And what I would do is feed your mind something every day really worth thinking on and just let it simmer on that back burner till you get something that's got some juice, some taste, some body to it. Now, as I say, I'm simply going to open up some areas and you may care to fire away in the area of reading. Any of these areas is up for grabs. A second principle. Learn to manage your time. Now, men, this is the one thing we all have in common. We don't all have the same IQ. We don't all have the same background. We don't all have the same gifts and talents and abilities. But the one thing we've all got in common is time. And it's not the amount of time, it's the use of time that separates the men from the boys. Jesus Christ on earth had no more time than you do. But he had all of the time necessary to do the Father's will. And he was never in a hurry. And I'm always in a hurry and seldom have time to do as well. Every now and then somebody says to me, well, yeah, but I'm under pressure. Pressure? How would you like to launch a worldwide enterprise in three and a half years? With a collection of disciples like he had. You talk about pressure. But you see, it was pressure amidst priority. Alexander of InterVarsity has a choice article you ought to read sometime. I think he put it out in booklet form, if I remember correctly, entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. Why, that's, that's worth frequent reading. That we tend to do the urgent rather than the important because the urgent says, i got to have it now. And the important doesn't have to be done right now, we think. Can I direct your attention to several passages of Scripture the Lord has been using in my life? They're very familiar ones, but they've been grabbing me afresh. Two of them are in Ephesians, if you want to turn there for a moment. I found myself frequently using the statement, I don't have time. You ever use that? You know, the longer I think about this, the more I think that's an out-of-bounds statement for a believer. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, those familiar verses give the answer. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that, that is the whole by grace through faith process, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, before the foundation of the world, God ordained what works you ought to be engaged in. If that's true, then you can never say, I don't have time. And I think if I say, I don't have time, it's for one of two reasons. Either I'm doing the wrong things, things my father never planned for me to do, or I'm doing them in the wrong way. But you see, God is not in the process of mocking you. He's not asking you to engage in works which he ordained for which 
you are totally incapable of accomplishing by virtue of lack of time. In the same book, over in chapter 5, we come to that familiar verse, stop being drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. But many people totally ignore the context of that. Look back at verse 15. Look, therefore, carefully how you walk. That is, walk with your eyes wide open. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as morons, but as people with spiritual insight. What's the test of that? Redeeming the time. You see, the mark of a mature, insightful man is that he knows how to master his minutes. Realizing that the days are evil. And the longer I study this passage, men, the more I am persuaded that it is only the control by the Spirit that will enable a man to redeem the time. I find there's a direct correlation between my use of time and my control by the Spirit. And when I'm walking in the flesh, man, I just somehow don't have time to do much of anything significant. And the other passage is the passage I quoted for you yesterday morning from Psalm 90. It's a beautiful psalm in its entirety, but particularly verses 10 through 12. Days of our years are threescore years and ten, and perhaps by virtue of God's grace they're extended to fourscore years. But it's soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us the number of our days that we may get us a heart of wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to use your time well. Teach us to pour eternity into time. I have a colleague, and I shared this passage with him, and he got so convicted that this guy got himself a reverse counter. And on his little diary, on his desk, he reverse counts every day and figures what might logically he have as a lifespan, and each day he has one less day shows up on that calendar. Someone else might say morbid. No, I would say real wisdom. Because many of us are living here as if we are going to live here for eternity. Now, to me, there's a key sequence in this, and uh, you're working with men all the time, and perhaps this will help you to clarify your own thinking as well as help others. I think the use of time basically boils down to three things. It boils down to priorities. It boils down to schedule. It boils down to discipline. And you have a cause-effect relationship in every case. You see, your priorities determine what goes into your schedule. And your schedule determines the disciplining of your time. Frequently I will ask a student, what do you want to be? 
Well, he says, I want to be a great expositor of the word. Okay, let me see your schedule. What have you got in your schedule that will help you accomplish that priority? And the interesting thing is that often he has nothing. Not even a consistent time in the Word. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're going. And by the way, may I also add parenthetically, this completely takes out this little ticky-tacky approach of don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. I'll tell you why. I say, look, Will that help you accomplish your objective or not? No, it really won't. Then you've already made your decision. I don't care if everybody in the world is doing it. It doesn't help me accomplish my objective. So it's out of bounds. What's your problem? But you see, we're constantly saying, don't do that. Oh, cut that out. A little more. The truth of the matter is the guy has no objectives. He has no priorities in his life. He's never determined what he really wants to be. And then you see, I'm not all hung up in some legalistic type of approach on a schedule either, because my schedule is not a demon chaperone keeping me from doing what I'd really like to do. It's helping me to do what I've determined I want to do. So I don't resent it, I appreciate it. Now, one other thing, and then I'll move on to another, and we can come back to this for our discussion if you'd like. You know an important clue? Study yourself. Now, this may be my prejudice, and if it is, completely rule it out. But think about it for a moment. I sometimes think one of the greatest curses on the American scene is reading the biographies of outstanding Christians. I'll tell you why. I profited greatly from these. Don't misunderstand. What I think happens is somebody reads a biography of Joe Schmatzkoff, who got up, you know, at such and such a time, engaged in such and such activities. In fact, he prayed in the snow and it was all bloody. And this is obviously the answer. So, boy, this guy, you know, goes through all kinds of gyrations, trying to put himself through the same routine and discover he's bloody, but for an altogether different reason. <laughs> and I think the art of living is the art of studying yourself. Can I just share a couple things so that you know what I'm talking about? I discovered, for example, that I have low times in my day in terms of performance. In my experience, it is approximately 4.30 to 6.30 in the afternoon. Don't, don't look at the watch. Because <laughs> i got a compensating factor. As I said to the Lord, all i got to do is have a crop of navigators in front of me and I'm turned on beyond my ability. <laughs> but I'm talking about just an ordinary day as I teach in the seminary. This is my primary ministry. About 4.30, I go home. You know why? It's zero for me. I'm just a washout. So from 4.30, I go home, and I play with a dog, and I wrestle with my kids, and I take a walk, and I do all kinds of things. Because at 6.30, i got to hit the bucks. I'm going to be gone till a good 11, 11.30. And man, I've got to put out an awful volume of work. 
But you know, I used to think, man, Hendricks, you got to get with it. And when you got that much more, why just stay with it a little longer? So I'd stay with it through this period of time, you know, and I'd fight it like crazy, and boom. Then we'd come to 7.30, and I'd crank it up again. And along about 9, you know, I was goo-goo-eyed. <laughs> and you know what I discovered? I discovered my efficiency level was just going like this. Another discovery I made. At the seminary, they feed us the largest meal in the middle of the day, which is the saddest time to eat your largest meal. So what happens? All of your blood goes to your gut, where it doesn't belong if you got to think. It belongs up here, and it ain't up there. It's down here. So the students come into the afternoon classes, you know, and whoo, they're in the second or third stage of anesthesia. <laughs> Now, you know, it's okay if the students are asleep, but if the prof is asleep, we're in problems. <laughs> and I discovered that the best thing for me were a couple pieces of cheese and crackers and an apple in the middle of the day. And I brown bag it every day of the week. And I'll pull some students into my office and we'll have some fellowship together and some prayer together and so forth. And that's all I eat. And the interesting thing is, boy, in the afternoon I'm rolling. And I'm as wide awake as I'm ever going to be. Now what I say to a man is this. Study yourself. When are you most efficient and when are you least efficient? That's very important to differentiate. And if you work better at night because you're an owl, then do a little more work at night. And if you're the morning dove, then friend, kick yourself out of the sack and get with it. My problem was, I was a morning dove, my wife was an owl. And that makes an interesting combination. Because I'm always up at 5.30 in the morning. Man, at 5.30 I hit that floor and I'm never more conscious than I am then, which may not be saying very much. <laughs> Whereas my wife, you know, along around 9 o'clock and the second or third cup of coffee, about the third or fourth brain cell begins to function. And as some of you know, my wife writes. So along about 10.30, you know, I'm beginning to fold in the stretcher. My wife's going like this, saying, Hey, Ollie, listen to this one. What do you think of this? <laughs> Lo and behold, you fell asleep on me. Couldn't be very exciting. I said, I don't try it on for size at this time. Here's a third one. Evaluate your performance. Evaluate your performance. Two passages out of Proverbs have been very helpful to me recently. Proverbs 13 and verse 7. There is that which maketh himself rich, yet has nothing. There is that which maketh himself poor, yet has great wealth. You know what that tells me? There's a value system. Back to chapter 11 and verse 24. There is that that scattereth and increaseth yet more. And there is that that withholdeth more that is meat, but it tends only to poverty. You learned that? Neither have I. But I'm in the process. It's exciting, isn't it? Plan 
time for evaluation, this is saying to me. You need periodic assessment of your ministry. I have a very close friend in the Chicago area. He is an executive with a small corporation, but growing. And some time ago, he shared with me an experience in his life. He said, you know, Howie, I went to the office. He said, man, we had a red-hot organization, growing like crazy, plans for the future. He said, we got our goals for the year 2000, and we're figuring how we're going to produce this and distribute it and all of the rest of it. One day I came home with my wife and I was in a bedroom sharing what we were doing, how exciting was the future and so forth and so on. All of a sudden she very quietly but graciously said, sweetheart, I think that's wonderful. When are we going to sit down and plan for 2000 in our family? And he said, boy, it was just like your proverbial two by four that the Lord picked up and went. See, man, you stop and think of it. I've never yet met a person who sat down and planned to live a mediocre life. And he said, all of a sudden it dawned on me, here I am planning like crazy for my business, evaluating, but I don't do anything in my home. So he went to the Holiday Inn, rented a room with his wife for Friday night, Saturday, and all day Sunday got a babysitter in and he and his wife did nothing but pray read the word and set up their goals and evaluate their home life and he said you know it was the best experience we've ever had in our life and in our marriage my wife and i have done this for a number of years now and frankly i wouldn't trade anything for it we just go off for a weekend sometime and do some evaluation now remember, when you evaluate, you always do two things. You establish your strengths, and you establish your weaknesses. What do you got going for you? What do you need to trust the Lord for? And make sure you spend time in both. Otherwise, it can be a self-defeating program. You see, experience doesn't make you better in anything. It tends to make you worse, unless it's evaluated experience. One other thing, and then you can have at it. Make sure you're comparing yourself with yourself, not with others. Well, this is the hardest thing to get my students to do. You know, one of the great weaknesses of an academic program is that everything is measured on the basis of your comparison with somebody else. And you set up a lifestyle that is devastating. You see, this guy compares himself with a guy sitting next to him. Well, but that guy's only got two cylinders. And you've got 12 operating on four. Well, you're twice as sharp as he is but you're a long way below what God is holding you accountable for. And by the way, this is one reason why some of the sharpest people never accomplish their potential, because they're always comparing themselves with somebody else, and they're always better than someone else. But they're so far below what they could really be if they would ever stretch themselves and compare themselves with themselves. What gifts has God given to me? 
Now, let's share. What are some things in here that you'd like to talk more about? What would you like to question? And most of all, what do you have to share with us that we could profit from? Let's face it, God has taught you something in some of these specific areas that could make this the most profitable session of the week. And uh, I don't want you to be hesitant to share with the rest of us. The Lord has been teaching you in these areas. Yeah, I'd like to find out in, under this idea of thinking uh, how you compare this art of thinking to the art of meditation, like meditation on the word, and how much do you include this this thing of thinking, for instance, setting aside 15 minutes a day to think. Now, do you say this is separate from, for instance, meditation on, uh, on the word or meditation on the ministry? Should this be thinking used in relation to our ministry or whatever? whatever? Very perceptive question, but let me say that it is not necessarily separated from it, though it might be. In my judgment, one of the great secrets of the Christian life is the art of meditation, which is the art of developing a spiritual cut. It's the art of brainwashing your mind with the truth of God's word. The renewing of your mind, Paul calls it. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, but be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. You see, our problem is that we tend to think only humanistically. We tend only to embrace human viewpoint. And you need to get a divine viewpoint, which gets an altogether different perspective on it. So I would say that this, this would make a major contribution to a man's life. What I'm saying is that I think that there is also room for thinking just in terms of the whole of one's life, which certainly would include this, would include more than this. Dean? You mentioned this example of uh, your wife being a night person and you being a morning person. Uh, how do you, what's your solution to that problem? Live longer. We are now coterminous. She can't stay up late for trying, and she can't sleep late. We have completely identified with our pattern. Now, if this is not the case, let's say, then I think what you need to do is to build on the basis of the advantages of each rather than on the basis of the disadvantages. I don't count on her to do that much at this time. She doesn't count on me doing that much at this time. And the time when we have together is the time that we capitalize upon. But I think, generally speaking, you discover that one of the characteristics of marriage is the longer you live together, if you are growing, the more you tend to become like each other. And this affects many areas. On this thing of thinking, I've been uh, giving some research and thinking to the thing that the analytical mind is an analytical thinking, and I've been talking to different people and I talked with one man that made this statement that uh, the way that he has developed his mind into this type of thinking is reading books that he disagrees with. Reading books what? That he disagrees with. That he disagrees with. Good. And uh, concerning the saying of reading widely and wisely, how would you react to, uh, to that comment? I would react very favorably to this. 
in the sense that I find that if a man does not stretch my thinking so that I put down a new shaft in terms of why I believe what I believe in contradistinction to this, he really doesn't help me very much. And I think what we tend to do, because we are such insecure people, is to read the thing that confirms our prejudices. See, that's why most of us don't think we just rearrange our prejudices. And we listen to a sermon, and you go out, and the guy says, Hey, that's a good sermon. So what do you like about it? Two things. What are they? They're his two prejudices. And you're right on target. One other thing that's been helpful to me in this, to tie on to what he's saying, and that is, most of us do too much post-hole thinking. That is, we dig down too deeply in this direction instead of moving over and digging another hole. And so what I do, for example, when I'm studying the Word, if I want to get a new perspective on a passage of Scripture, is I go over and dig another hole here from an altogether different viewpoint. I, man I imagine myself as a medical doctor looking at this, per at this passage in Luke from the perspective of a medical man. Just to get an altogether different viewpoint. Give us some guidelines on how to pick good books. Yes, I would give you a few. Uh, first of all, I always pick books primarily on the basis of authors. To me, a significant author usually produces a significant book. Now, sometimes he will produce a better one. But I, I look primarily for good authors. The second thing I do is I look for a book which has been on the market sufficient period of time to prov prove its value. And if a book has been around for a good period of time and is selling, not because it happens to be a book on sex or some other subject, but because it's got quality to it, this is good. Can I give you an illustration of it? Herman Harold Horn, H-O-R-N-E, wrote a book entitled Jesus the Master Teacher. It goes back into the early 1900s. It is still in print. And it ought to be. It's a classic. And for a guy in the navs, to me it would be must-reading because that's what it's dealing with, the whole process of how Jesus Christ trained his disciples. Herman Harrell Horn was the chief opponent of John Dewey. Horn was an evangelical at New York University when Dewey was holding forth at Columbia. And they both viewed the life of Jesus Christ as significant from an educational point of view. Horn built it on a supernatural foundation. Dewey said you can never do that. He put it on a humanistic foundation. And these are the differences of outlook. Thirdly, I read books which are out of my particular realm. In other words, out of my field. I have to read the books in my field. But I read a book, I'm reading a book right now on architecture. It's absolutely fascinating. I just finished reading a book on ornithology, study of birds. And down here looking at that eagle's nest gave me some fantastic backup material for what this guy was telling about eagles. 
and the expression in the Old Testament as the eagle stirs up her nest. You see, this is the kind of thing that gives you all kinds of enriching material, conversational material, illustration material. And it makes you a more interesting person. And I think that sometimes I say to a guy, look, you can be a fundamentalist, but friend, you don't have to act like one. You don't have to look like one. You know, he looks like he just came out of the last century and that he never had a thought in contemporary experience. So I tried to read something like this. For instance, I watch very carefully the bestseller list. There's a book on that list by Alvin Toffler, T-O-F-F-L-E-R, called Future Shock, that every one of you guys should read. It's a thick one, boy. Future Shock. It's been on that bestseller list for the last six months, and not without reason. The chapter on the future home will rot your socks. And it'll tell you more about what you guys are going to have to be up against in a navigator ministry, let's say in the next decade or two. Now, mind you, Alvin Toffler is no wild-eyed killiast. He is an ultra-humanist. He's a scholar, very sane, sober, controlled type of individual. I'll never forget hearing him lecture recently in Atlanta at an educator's convention. I'll tell you, he rocked them like they've never been rocked before. They'll never recover from the exposure. And all it was was on a basis of pure scientific fact. Here are the facts. What does this do to project in terms of the future? Where are we going? And this is what he tells you. If you want to know what's coming up, this is a book you ought to read. But now you see, it's that type of thing that, that stretches me. I, that's not on the evangelical book list. Best seller list like Time Magazine's best seller? Right. I, I go by Time by Atlantic Monthly, by Harper's, by the Saturday Review of Literature. These four are my primary sources. Now you have to develop them on, again, the basis of your own interest, because what appeals to me may not appeal to you. I read three books every week, for a minimum, and I read 35 journals every month. And the only way you can do this is by learning to read fast, better and faster. And if you don't read better and faster, then you're just going to have to settle for a limited objective. But there are good courses available. There are good books available. Norman Lewis wrote a little book. It's a paperback, How to Read Better and Faster, that you can get a hold of, read. At the end of each chapter, he gives you a series of exercises. You apply them. Learning to read better and faster is simply a process of discipline, nothing more nor less. And guys who are committed to a disciplining ministry ought to know how to discipline your mind in reading. You see, let me give you some illustrations to tell you what I'm talking about. Many of you are in the same place, so you can identify with it. I have never had a study in my home, 21 years teaching in seminary. I've had four kids, two, four, six, eight, 16, 18, 20, 22, etc., and boy, you know what this is like in a house, small house? Like Grand Central Station. Boy, you know, this is where the action is. You know where I have to study? Right in the living room in the midst of all of this stuff going on. You know where I do most of my reading? I do most of my reading in an airport waiting for the plane. With all of this stuff going on around me. And I have to learn, I have to learn discipline to control all of the stuff 
out of my life so that I could read. With concentration, I miss a couple planes. <laughs> it's a real limitation. But the amazing thing is that I can just shut myself off. I don't know anything that's going around me like this. And if you learn to read better and faster, you will not only read more, but you'll retain more. You see, there is an idiocy in reading. The person says, I will slow down and retain more. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth of the matter is, if you speed your reading up, you will retain more. So I say to a man, if it takes you 30 minutes to read a book of the New Testament and you retain X amount, by learning to read better and faster, you can read the same book in 15 minutes and get twice as much than for the same amount of time you can get four times as much out of your reading. So you can read a lot more than you are reading, but it's a discipline to get that eye span moving. I remember with Dr. Ironside I was mentioned, mentioning to you, I gave him a sheet of paper. I used to do some of his correspondence. I gave him a letter. I said, Dr. Read this thing. So he went like this. He said, okay, what do you want to know? I said, well, read it. He said, I have read it. I said, come on. Well, he said, ask me anything. Sure enough, that guy read the whole thing. Just going down the center of that page, his eye span would catch everything in the whole thing. Just... <laughs> And after he read that, he said, I'll tell you what to do. Tell him this. I said, oh, you don't want to tell him that. Sure. Scripture says, answer a fool according to his wedge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. In relation to your reading, uh, 35 journals, do you read selected articles or do you read the entire journal? No, I read selected articles. Some of them I read almost in their entirety, particularly those that are very tangent to my field. But otherwise, I prefer to read selectively. And the amazing thing is that you pick up all kinds of stuff through this means that you wouldn't read. You would go into a periodical room just and browse around. You find stuff so tangent to the naps. I sometimes wish I had the time and I would love to do it to be the reader for, for the naps. Just going through this kind of stuff and every now and then picking up material out of here. I just got one that was sent to me. It's a communist uh, periodical that a guy picked up in Albania and he Xeroxed for me and sent to me with respect to their program of discipling. It is absolutely tremendous. Just point by point they go through this thing. This is the type of thing you see you don't have access to but every now and then you know you run into a contact. And so periodically for people that I do this with and this would be a terrific thing if you had it on a group basis occasionally where, you know, you run across something real hot, and what you ought to do is sort of title it, you know, things that I have read that changed me. And just write it down, keep circulating it, and over a period of time, you'd come up with some excellent material. Because nobody, I mean, but nobody can read all of the stuff on the market today. And nobody should. Yeah, Rest. Uh, do, you read, do you read novels at all? Very rarely. Though my wife tells me I'm really out of it, and I think she's right. She says the most significant form of communication in our generation is the novel. So she's reading one now, and as soon as she gets through, I'm going to read it. I think she's right. But uh, I'm in this area like you are. In other words, you know, you have a limited amount of time, and therefore you rule out a lot of stuff that you might like to. But uh, 
don't have time for. But if you want to plug into contemporary mentality, this is very important. The other thing that I would suggest for you is that you analyze contemporary music. I think this is some of the finest way to get an opener to a group of kids. See, some of this music is asking, I mean, if you can, you know, put up with the music for a while, and if you can't, get the, get the stuff printed out. For instance, the opera Jesus Christ Superstar is something else. This thing is loaded. It's blasphemous on one occasion. But the questions this asks, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? And that's the most central issue in the Gospels. And uh, who will answer? I've had contact with the girl that wrote this thing, who's, by the way, got that thing in court. She's suing him for putting in that hallelujah bit. She didn't write that. See, they tried to make a spoof out of it. She said, this is not a spoof. This is a genuine inquiry. Who will answer? There are eight critical areas in that song that we take and go out on a college campus and say, here's the answer of the scriptures to suicide, the answer to drugs, the answer to marriage, war, etc. Yes, sir? How much time uh, would you recommend uh, our investing in reading? I think this depends very largely on you as a person, obviously how fast you can read, but here's something I would give that would suggest to you that, that I think you ought to think of, and that is you ought to do more of what I call snatch reading. Not just where, you know, I'm now going to have a time to read. But see, you come home, and uh, you got ten minutes. Your wife doesn't have it on the table right now. Okay, so I just pull that. I got reading material all over my house, in my john, everywhere I got it. The result is every one of my children reads. My, my two sons read far faster than I do. But that cost me something. My boy went to school, to high school, I mean to grammar school. And by the way, some of you probably got into this, so you should come to grips with it. He went to a public school where he had a first grade teacher who was a part of what I call the happiness cult. And that is, you know, the important thing is that your boy be happy. Well, I said, that's lovely, man, but he can't read. Well, that's all right. Just, you know, make sure he's well-adjusted. Well, I put up with this for a year, and he still couldn't read. So finally I went to see her. I said, lady, did it ever occur to you that he's disgustingly happy, but he can't read? It cost me 600 bucks to give that, that kid a, a remedial, 600, $60, to give him a remedial reading program. It's the best 60 bucks I ever invested. And he goes through books that I have read, so I know how to test them, and is very conversant. And may I suggest for you to do this? My wife put me on to this. Every one of our family reads. All the time we read. So at our family table, we don't have roast preacher or roast parishioner. We don't talk about inane things. We discuss books that we've read. Share with us what you've read. And the result is this directs your conversation to something constructive rather than just a wasted time. And furthermore, it gives your kid an outlet for reading because he has an opportunity to share something. Well, the reading novels, uh, are you, you say you, you think you're probably, what your wife is right, you should, you, are you thinking in terms of just kind of entertaining that? Oh, no, 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 a novel. That's the one you want to read. I'm not talking about the little junk you get down here. That's that's yellow journalism of the highest order. 
I mean, that, that's written by perverts to develop perverts. And if you just want it for total relaxation, like I have a doctor friend, and he says, I your problem is, the reason you can't sleep is you read too heavy stuff. He said, what you want to do is read something about animals. He said, always before I go to bed, I read something about animals. There's nothing controversial about animals. <laughs> so I tried it, and I'm still climbing a wall. <laughs> Yeah. What Christian writers do you uh, uh, enjoy reading? I find that uh, it's pretty hard to find a Christian book that has one original idea. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> Boy, I, I kid you not, brother. This this is really a this is really a major problem. It's one of the areas that I think where we failed more than in any other, and that is in a whole realm of writing. I enjoy myself Joe Bailey's writing, not only because he's a good personal friend of mine, but because he stimulates me. I don't agree with everything he writes, but I sure enjoy reading his little column in the eternity out of my mind. He just puts burrs under my mental saddle. Or I love to write to read the writings of Chad Walsh at Beloit, Wisconsin who I don't think is an evangelical in any stretch of the imagination, but the guy really can write. He's the one who wrote Early Christians of the 21st Century. And uh, other such books. But there really is not a whole lot written that, that in my judgment really is that worthwhile. I'm sure you've read C.S. Lewis. You ought to. You know, read that book, and you talk about his his novels for children. Boy, I wouldn't I wouldn't let your kid grow up without reading his whole series of children's novels. If you want to see analogy at its best, there it is. Brillandia, this type of thing, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Scotty was here a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about this, and he said that one of the practices that he had developed was reading quite a number of books on the same subject. For a period of time, he would read 20 or 30 books on the same subject. Is this something you found helpful? Yeah, I, I have, Leroy. In fact, I, I found it most effective, and I'll tell you why, because it gives you a depth and breadth in a, in a specific area that you don't get with just the scattered type of reading. I, I think this is extremely valid. And every now and then, for instance, I'm in the process of writing a series of articles now for Eternity Magazine. And I've been doing a lot of study and depth on the subject. And I'm reading everything I can get my hands on in that. Well, the interesting thing is, after a while, you just start, you know, eating, breathing, sleeping, this kind of stuff. And uh, it's the same principle, you know, they use in the service of intensive exposure in a language, where that's all you hear morning, noon, and night. You know, and a person comes out and has a tremendous grasp of the language. And all this business, you recommend uh, this book on, you know, what's coming up in the future. Um, you got a couple you can recommend to us on how to understand what's going on today. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to know mentality, contemporary mentality, in, in my judgment, Leroy, the best writings are those of Francis Schaeffer. I think he really has his finger up on the pulse of contemporary mentality. And if you want, I would be glad to share with you what I call the ten axioms of the modern mind, which may help you. Would it? 
All right. Uh, I don't. Uh, I've got them up in my room, and uh, what I'll do is bring them down for tomorrow, and uh, share them with you. I certainly agree with your comment about the, the music thing. This is something that uh, I looked into some, and uh, you're certainly right on that. I feel in this this business. But last year I went down and got four or five books on. Um, I just call it the revolution. Yeah, you books here on the revolution, you know. Yeah. They had a big list, and I took and read them. And some are pretty good, but... Um, Get a lot of junk, too. Yeah. Right. And I just there if you had... Uh, yeah, what I tried to do is to take contemporary mentality. In other words, what's behind what's in that music? What, what this kid's thinking about? Who, who was it here? One of the guys was telling me about it uh, up in Massachusetts. Yeah, man. He's giving me some fantastic... Uh, backdrop on on the ministry the Lord's opening up here in New England, and uh, you know the, the, everything's anti, you know anti-religion, anti-establishment, the works. Well, there's a reason for that, and what I try to do is to recreate what are the basic principles. I'll share these with you. Don't let me forget that now. The rest of you, were you asking or just scratching your head? Okay, you had enough, or you want you want me to go up and get them? Yeah. On uh, setting goals in the area of self-development, let's say we set them for a period of time, like a semester or school year, it seems to me that I run into a conflict over those that continue and those that are short-range. It's pretty obvious everything can be long-range and continue out after the time period. I wonder if you speak to uh, that. Yeah. Uh, what I like to do in this area is to get myself a combination. In other words, obviously you're going to get some long-range goals that are going to go over a period of time. But I find if I don't break this thing down into more manageable units, I discover when I get down here, I don't have a whole lot more done than I had back here, except they still have this high-powered goal for them. Whereas if I break it down into some manageable units, that let's say at the end of this year I will accomplish this, 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 and this, then I still haven't accomplished this goal, and I'm further down the road for it. So I, I tried to go this route, uh, Larry, and I also tried to ask myself the question that a businessman gave me. He said, your goals, Hendrick, are no good unless you can answer the question, what will have happened when? Because only then can you measure the thing to find out if you have accomplished it. And if you can get some, you know, quantifiable element, then you're a lot better, at least, in terms of, of saying I've accomplished these goals. But I, I, I think, now, by the way, there's some people who get hung up because they're only in the short-range job, and they never have a long-range goal. And that's just as we. You try to do uh, some things that will terminate in a short period of time, plus Long range, same time. And where I can take long range goals and break them down and the form apart, I find I accomplish more. Well, any of those short ranges terminate at, say, the end of uh, one third period? Yeah, good to Right. But they set me up for a building, let's say, the next stage, which leads me to that. You know, for example, let's suppose I'm going and I get the goal of some discipleship with respect to a given group of people. Well, I first got four in the group. I got to select my men. And I finish that in a given period of time, but they're not disciples. 
So now I've got a base on which to move to move to the next base and so forth. In the area of uh, personal development, can you give us some examples of uh, long-range goals? Long goals? You're talking in terms of me as a person, for example? Well, yeah. What you might recommend for us? Well, you know, it's a little hard to recommend it for you in the sense that I say this is what you should do. But let, let me personalize it, and then you can identify with it in some way. I have a goal of an hour every day alone in the Word. And I spend only one month in a book of the Bible, Old and New Testament, other than one I'm teaching or preaching. With the result that this is 12 books a year, and you can figure it out. Every so many years, I cover the entire Old Testament and New Testament. I've been down the road now about seven times, I guess, through all of these books. But I set the goal, basically, early in my ministry. I wanted to be a master of the Word of God. And Dr. Dr. Barnhouse taught me a lesson one day. So I was riding down in a train, and there was a kid in seminary sitting across in the other compartment. And I was reading the book of Romans. As you know, the guy practically memorized the thing. And he said, I was reading the book of Romans, and this guy was reading Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal, etc. And pretty soon he looked over and he recognized who he was. And he came over to him and he says, man, I'd give anything if I could know the Bible the way you do. He said, that's exactly what I've given. And he said, if you continue to read what you're reading, instead of what I'm reading, then you'll know more about that than you know about this. And he created in my heart a tremendous passion, not only to master the Word, but to be mastered by it. Now, my specifics are that every month I set myself up in another book, Old and New Testament. So I've got a long-range goal, but I've got it quantifiable. Because I found, here's where this personal approach. I find I run out of gas in a month. I'd much rather come back to a book three times rather than spend three times too much time and find my motivation goes like this. So what I found is about a month, boy, I'm really going like crazy. And I'm just starting. Here we are in the second. I'm in the second chapter of the book of Song of Solomon, which is the book I'm working on right now. And I happen to be translating it with one of my colleagues. So this is gold mine. You all out? Yeah. Uh, back to how you're reading here, with all the reading that you do and being able to use the information that is significant in your reading, could you uh, very briefly tell us how you um, file it or whatever you do is make it available? You know, if I find something that's a significant article, for example, my wife and I are in the process of working. She's writing a book. I'm just helping her with it. She's writing a book on on women, the book of Bible study, to plug in to this contemporary bit, which is constantly hammering away with women's lib, etc. So she's studying like crazy, that's what she's doing here this week, among other things, in this area. And we came across the Choices article in Atlantic Monthly. Now we happened to subscribe to Atlantic Monthly, so we ripped it out. While I was down at the seminary, I was just browsing around, I ran across a fantastic article. So what I did was just Xerox the article, and she has that up in her file that we're using. 
If it's just a quotation, you know, I may mark it and write it out or have my secretary type it out. Um, I don't say, frankly, a whole lot of stuff. I used to, but I found it a great waste of time. And I'll tell you why. I used to spend all of my time in my filing system. And so, for instance, I used to save all kinds of illustrations until finally I discovered nothing is as stale as old illustrations. You know, do you know who won the series in 1937? It was a fantastic year. You could care less. See, I can get better illustrations out of contemporary magazines. So why save this type of thing? The other stuff I keep in my little, my own filing system, particularly books of the Bible. I have a subject file and I have an illustration file. Most of them are biblical illustrations.
protracted time to that. Is this what you're talking about? Or it is what I'm talking about, Leroy, and I, and I like and I appreciate you sharing this with us because I didn't communicate this, but I think it's a very important thing, and that is that there are really two kinds of, of thinking. One is more freewheeling, the other is more directed. And you get a different you get a different product out of each kind. Now the guy that's a real creative thinker, so he does a lot of freewheeling thinking. That's why he's creative. He's, he's just going off on all kinds of things. Just a little wild ideas. You say, well man, you could never use this. No, nope. but every now and then he gets a winner. That's all he needs. Talk to the guy that invented the cube, the flash cube. By the way, he's an evangelical Christian. Tremendous commitment. And he told me how he invented that thing. And, uh, man, it's just absolutely remarkable. He was sitting watching some bright object on a tree that kept moving around with the wind. And every time it would change, it would change the orientation and flash and a reflection. Ref can't even get the word. <laughs> Refraction of the light. And the result was, he kept thinking, you know, if I could do that, and he started to go like this, and pretty soon he said, man, maybe I could put something on the top of the camera that would reverse the light each time. And he only got two and a half million for that one. Which was a shame that he should have wasted his time. I was all the time at work, and I was keeping an eye on the courses, but I was so impatient. I, I think, well, I'd rather get the book and read it instead of sitting on lectures that I really Yeah, I do. First of all, if you're working with college students, I think it do worlds for you to get into a college situation periodically, just to get back, just to hear the kinds of questions they're asking. But you know what I do and recommend to a guy? Pick your props. Pick your props. The key in education is the man, not the court. And when you get a significant person sitting at court, and all you got to do is to, you know, ask the guys on campus, Who, who's got it? And boy, they never stutter. Some of them, they print their evaluations of the professor. And he gets around real fast about who's got it and who ain't. Well, there's no point in sitting under Mr. Mediocrity. You know, who's got his tenure and the rest of it. You find somebody who's really infectious. And boy, when you find one, you got one. We've had one, we just lost him. It was our greatest loss. Got the name of Charmin, who taught trial law. I sent my students out in droves to watch this guy. See, because he's, he's a significant person. He's a teacher, motivator. And he's the guy, some of you, did I ever share this illustration with you? You remember? Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, this is the guy, you know, teaches trial law. He just decimates him. He just wipes him out. He's both sides. Prosecution, defense, nothing left. And Wink says, how would you like to win this case? Well, they all take off after him. <laughs> it's just anybody. If you go out to SMU and you see a guy going down about 20 people behind him, follow him. And that's the guy. And we're asking what his educational philosophy was. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I had just one principle of teaching. I'd rather have my students lose in here and win out there rather than win in here and lose out there. And our seminary lawyer was trained by this guy. I said to him, Bill, what was it like? He said, friend, anything in real life was downhill after Charmin. 
<laughs> you know, that's, that's a guy that, you know, you, you, just one comes along every now and then. And what, in fact, I've often said to myself, really, some of the greatest education you can get is just traveling across the country sitting under great men. If you want a good illustration of this and you want something biographical but also educated, read Houston Peterson's book, Great Teachers. It's a very, very worthwhile book because it tells you about some of the great teachers of all time and the men who sat under them. Houston Peterson. Okay, we had enough. Well, let me tell you a few things that we have done. I think one of the most important things for you to do is to ask, what do you want to inculcate in your kids? For instance, if I ask you right now, if you had only one thing to build into the life of your kids, what would you build into them? Now, obviously, most of you would come up Jesus Christ or something of this type. But, but I'm talking about basic habit pattern, things of this kind. You know what I would? Honesty. Honesty. A person who is honest with himself, who is honest with others, and who is honest with God. Now, if that's true, then you set up your life on the basis of that. In your home life, your value system, all of the things you're trying to inculcate. Now, go back to this idea we mentioned earlier of reading. I discovered very early in the game, you see, when you come to graduate school, such as we have, we, we don't think anything of asking you to read a book for the next hour. They don't think much of it either. But... You know, I'll read this book for the next hour. And man, some of these guys come out of engineering school or something of this type where, you know, hoo, hoo, hoo. and the poor guy, you know, he reads and reads for an hour. He's on the seventh page. And uh, all of a sudden it dawned on me, man, I'm training, hopefully, some leaders for Christian work. And man, if that guy can't read, he's out of it. So the result was very high on our priority list as a family was reading. So if I had to do without a lot of other things, as I have, we get books, because these are very important to us. So your values show up in your home. And to some people, it's the Wedgwood. You know, it's the Duncan Five Furniture. It's all the rest of the junk they got under one mortgage. But if you look in a guy's home, you'll see what his value system is. And to me, there are certain things that are very high on that list. And what we tried to do, Dean, was to sit down and ask, okay, what are the things that you want to develop? Another one was the gift of industry. And by the way, that's largely modeled. It's caught more than taught. Etc. And I think that if Oh, yes. Let me give you one or, one or two more that may be of helpful because you were asking me also in terms of the future. One of the things that we, we had a real hassle over in one sense, and I'll tell you why in a moment, 
is to teach our children that look, we live as a family on a basis of what we want, we think Jesus Christ wants us to do. We could care less what anybody else is doing. Now, boy, that develops a group of rugged individualists, and that has problems too. And I've got a rugged group of rugged individualists. But you see, my kid would come running home and say, Hey, Dad, how come we don't do this? You know, Dr. Campbell's boy does it. See, he's my colleague at the seminar. The interesting thing is that I talk to Campbell, and he says, Well, Dr. Henry's boy does it. You know, this is this working type of thing. So finally, I, we have to come down to the position, look, we don't care if everybody else is doing it in the Christian community. If we feel God doesn't want to do it, then it's out of bounds. And furthermore, if God wants us to do it, if nobody else is doing it, we're going to do it. And boy, I'll tell you, this develops some real strength. Can I give you the outworking of it? My son, this past summer, spent one whole summer in the inner city working with blacks. A program that 86 kids in Moody Bible Institute signed up for, boy, this was going to be it. And you know, in typical fashion, 12 of them show up. They tried to get some of the evangelical churches in the community to give them some support to help them get on. Nobody would support it. The institute wouldn't support it. Nobody would support it. So they supported themselves. And he worked all summer and came home with five cents in his pocket. He had poured all that he made back into this ministry. But you know the kid has never been the same. He will never be the same. Because of building into the life of these people. And the interesting thing, he says, Dad, let's face it. You taught me there's something far more important than bucks. And if we can't put that on the line, then we're shooting our mouth off without backing it up. And all I could say is, right on, man. But you see... You know, boy, I get down to this myself. Do I have to my willing to do this? Am I like my cowboy friend who walked in some time ago and said, I mortgaged my home? You mortgage your home. Yeah, he said, I bought a piece of real estate down in Mississippi for camp. How many people do you know are willing to mortgage their home for what they consider to be God's call to their life? Where do you develop this kind of thing? I really believe more and more that the kinds of things that you're looking for in the NAV, the kinds of things I'm trying to develop in a seminary, the kinds of things that we're interested in in the work of Jesus Christ are largely the product of somebody's home. But I'm not really convinced that we're developing it in our home. Some of our Christian homes are developing very, very inane products. And the reason for it is that we raise these kids in an aseptic environment. You know what the scripture says? You know it well. It is good for a man to do what in his youth? Yeah, never forget that. And I believe it's harder, men, to live significantly for Christ in an affluent society than it is in any other time. See, everybody makes a big deal over the days in the Depression how great we were. Great. Shoot, we didn't have an option. Nobody gave me a choice. Do you want to have a bike or nothing? Now the question is, could we even get food on the table? But today I got all kinds of choices as to where I'm going to put my money. And boy, 
The one thing I've never... And by the way, you know another thing to thank God for? Thank God you're with the Nats. You're never going to get wealthy in the Nats. You know that, don't you? If you don't, I'm telling you. See, if a man goes into the NAD because of the money he's going to get out of it, he doesn't have the intellectual qualification for the ministry. And you know what happens to a lot of guys like us? I tell you, we get feeling sorry for ourselves. See, you work with professional men. So do I. I work with, I work with medical doctors who don't have as much training as I do and who make 60,000 bucks at a crack like this. You know what happens after a while? We get real feeling sorry for you. I am suffering for Jesus. <laughs> Me and all my education, too. You know, the rest of us, Jack. You know, I got medical doctors in the city of Dallas, close friends, believers. I wouldn't trade them for anything. You know why? Because some of these people who have a lot of money, friend, have the most fantastic problems with their kids. And boy, I'm in the process of putting four kids through college, and I'm here to tell you, friend, that's an assignment. But every one of them is working his way through it, too. And boy, I wouldn't trade anything for the sacrifice that we've had. We haven't had everything, and that's great news, boy. But you haven't lost anything. My closest friend in Dallas, an outstanding Christian doctor in many ways, but he's got one boy in the in the penitentiary, he's got another kid who's on drugs, and I'm asking myself, you know, I should feel sorry for myself? Boy, think, think, gentlemen. And then thank God he privileged you to be his representative to this generation. Well, that time is gone here. We'll come back tomorrow and I'll start here and I'll be sure to bring those things. Uh, Leroy?